What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer here at the Washington Post. As we speak right now, the Build Back Better Act is this much closer to being passed by the House of Representatives. And when that happens, the slog will move over to the Senate on its way on its way to possibly becoming law but that's not stopping democrats and the president from championing what the legislation would do especially when it comes to inflation here explain what the white house and democrats are up to white house reporter for the washington post annie linsky annie welcome back to first look hi it's good to be here all right so democrats have rebranded the build back better act um, as something that can counter inflation concerns. The White House messaging, too, is now focused on the economy. Who's behind that pivot? Look, I'm, I mean, the White House um, concern about inflation, it, this is one of the things that they see as an existential threat, right? Like, inflate, you know, you've had a number of crises with this administration from COVID to Afghanistan. And when you talk to senior administration officials, they will say about both of those things, you know, in two years, they won't be on the minds of voters. So, you know, to step back for a minute, inflation is one of the few things that the administration officials will readily acknowledge will be a problem if it's still um, as rampant as it is right now when voters go to the um, polls. Now, they are worried about inflation as they're trying to get through trillions of dollars in new spending. And so what, what the White House is trying to do is sort of do a little political jitsu, as you pointed out this week, and try to say, look, um, some of the measures in this bill are going to help tamp down inflationary pressures. You know, and it's an argument that um, some of the economic folks in the White House have been making for a while. Um, but given that um, lawmakers are, are using inflation now as a reason to potentially not support the bill, that's why they have decided to switch and try to say that, look, you know, some of the things in this measure are going to keep costs down for families, and that will reduce some of the inflationary pressure. All right, let's talk more about that, because I mean, let's get real here, Annie. Inflation isn't something an American president has a lot of control over, but it, it remains a key concern for, for Americans as prices continue to go up, most visibly at the, at the gas pump, but also on supermarket shelves. So what specific new steps is the White House taking to tackle it? And will it make a difference? And I've also noticed th that when administration officials are talking about Build Back Better, they talk about how it re will reduce costs for for the American people. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to say that, um, you know, housing costs, childcare costs, healthcare costs will go down as a result of this legislation. And th that these are some of the kind of pocketbook issues that Americans feel, um, you know, most readily. I think one of the issues and 
flaws with that argument, quite frankly, is to your point that energy prices have really been driving inflation in recent weeks. And, um, you know, that puts the administration in a real bind because um, climate is really one of Biden's, you know, kind of key legacy items that he cares most about. So they are both sort of worried about inflation and trying to do things about it. And I think we're going to probably see some, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether there will be more supply that's brought online really in the coming days by the administration, but also this, you know, longer term view that fossil fuel, that the, the economy needs to move away from fossil fuels, which would not argue for more supply. So, the, you know, there are a lot of um, cross pressures that the administration is feeling right now, but I do think that right at this in this moment, the the sort of inflation hawks are having the loudest voice in the White House, and that's why they're trying to kind of like contort this legislation into an anti-inflation you know message. But that's also why you're probably going to see on the horizon them stepping up action on energy costs. So uh, you know the president's approval rating has taken a hit um, all throughout the summer, and now going into the fall. Um, the latest Quinnipiac poll this week puts the president's approval rating at 36%. Does the White House think that that's because of inflation? Well, that that cube poll that you mentioned um, is you know, definitely the lowest that we've seen the president's approval rating. Um, you know, to be fair, I think sometimes that particular polling outfit is a little bit of an outlier, but um, you have seen other polls where Biden is in his low 40s. Um, you know, the driver for that, I, I think um, inflation is certainly one of them. I mean, it's something that you see on, on you know, in you know, it's a day to day life um, a thing that people notice. But there are other bigger drivers. And, and one is that, you know, Biden came into office with this sort of promise to restore the country to normalcy. And, um, you know, we're not we're not there yet. You know, the, the country is more polarized than it, it has been. It certainly feels that way. Um, and, and you're, you're you know, you're, it's not as if you know, he was elected to get to rid of Donald Trump, who is is not been gotten rid of. I mean, he's as sort of out in the, you know, doing um, rallies. He's a very strong presence. And you're just you're seeing a sort of intensification of dislike for Joe Biden. And I think inflation is part of it. But it's also, you know, has he kept this promise to re to go back to normal? And we're still, you know, not in our offices and people are angry about schools. And there's a lot of residual angst that I think that is also embedded in those really bad numbers that you're seeing. Let's talk some uh, foreign policy, foreign affairs before we go. Let's start with China. President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met virtually this week. Given the deteriorating ties between Washington and, and Beijing, how substantial were those talks? I mean, it's a good question. You, um, you know, typically we'll see some sort of um, joint statement after a kind of quasi summit like that. I mean, given that it wasn't in person. Um, but we and we didn't see that in the end, so that was somewhat of a telltale sign that things are not, you know, um, on a, a great track. Um, the relationship with China is is Biden's, you know, biggest foreign policy um, kind of question mark, and and the biggest thing that he has to manage. Um, and there are signs that are going in opposite directions. I mean, you also saw with, you know, the the Chinese. 
um, in the United States are cooperating on climate in this sort of interesting and surprising way. Um, and that was, you know, suggesting perhaps there is an ability, as the administration has said, they want to be able to cooperate in places where the nation's values align and, and comp compete in other areas. Um, and so you've kind of seen cross currents where there is a little bit of cooperation, but you've also seen a little bit of competition too. You know, the United States saying that, like, the, you know, diplomatically, um, you know, not attending the Olympics in um, uh, in, in in December, or excuse me, in, in February. So I think like there certainly are you know signs in different directions. Um, but, you know, the idea that this had to be a virtual summit, I think, is very telling. Uh, there was an opportunity for the two leaders to have met in Rome on the sidelines of the G20. If she had attended that meeting, he has decided not to leave China. Um, he, he also missed a meeting in Glasgow. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to know that exactly what is going on behind this very complicated relationship, but it's one that we have to watch you know, for every single one of these signs, because mm -hmm. it is by far the most important one that um, that exists in the world right mm -hmm. now. And and <clears throat> excuse me. And, and during a meeting yesterday with um, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the president said that his administration is considering a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in China over human rights abuses. Is there a timetable on an official announcement of that decision? I mean, I mean that's the. That's a great question. I mean, they are not, they have not, you know, spelled out exactly when, but I think that um, it's, we know the United States is constantly looking for various points of leverage. Um, and, and this is one that they have gravitated towards. I mean, the, the possibility of it is a, a, it's a very Biden-esque measure in that it doesn't, it's not like a full boycott, which there are many groups that have called on the United States to do. I mean, this is a bit of a half measure to sort of suggest that the United States is upset with China and registering some amount of dissatisfaction without kind of going forward and fully boycotting. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's like part of the conversations that, you know, people like Jake Sullivan will be having with his counterparts and John Kerry with his counterparts, or excuse me, um, uh, Tony Blinken with his counterparts. And, you know, the idea that it's on the table right after this big you know, virtual summit with the Chinese leader um, does sort of suggest that, you know, there, the conversations were very hard between Biden and Xi. You know, if this were if this were Facebook, the relationship between the United States and China would be dubbed complicated. Exactly. <laughs> Annie Linsky, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. We're going to continue this conversation with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Deputy Editorial Page Editor for the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, and Washington Post columnist, Chuck Lane. Ruth and Chuck, welcome back to First Look. Morning. Good morning, Jonathan. All right. Um, this is to both of you, but Ruth, I want you to go first. Uh, your reaction? to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's eight hour and 32 minute, whatever that was, that pushed off the vote on Build Back Better until this morning. Well, I have a suggested word. It would be tantrum. Um, thank you for coming to me first. <laughs> I was gonna describe it as kindergarten and this is a little bit cliche, 
but that is an insult to kindergartners everywhere. And I don't want the ones who are watching um, Washington Post Live to be insulted in any way. This is just after a really dreary week um, that included um, a rebuke and censure of Paul Gosar. Um, it was hard to imagine that the Republicans could diminish themselves further with this uh, McCarthy. I'm going to just keep using the word tantrum, um, but they did. And to what end? You know where the vote is. The end was it ended up pushing the vote over into a time when it could actually get much more um, press attention, much more television coverage at a time when people were going to be watching. So um, good work. Kevin McCarthy. Right. That's actually a great point. Um, Chuck, your your reaction to the tantrum? Well, I slept through it like most of America, but um, I would just uh, take the other side of Ruth's point in the following sense. Uh, Ruth, you, me, and Jonathan are not the audience for this speech. Uh, the audience for this speech is another America, which is the America that's worried uh, that Kevin McCarthy doesn't fight, uh, that uh, the Republicans in Congress are a bunch of softies who roll over for Nancy Pelosi. And that is the group of people this was targeted to. Uh, obviously, they probably slept through it too, uh, depending on the time zone, but it will be uh, chopped up into 30-second bites and you know sent out on YouTube and chopped up into ads and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, it may be a mystery to us what he had in mind, but I think it was directed toward his own base. And that, uh, you know, that was his agenda. Chuck, well, you know, I kind you, of you, half agree with you because I think it was directed um, particularly to one part of his base, which is sitting yes. in Florida and watching the whole darn thing. Exactly. That was the point I was exactly about to make, Ruth, that um, Chuck, uh, yeah, he's not, yeah, sure, he's talking to another America, but he's really talking to another American. And everything Kevin McCarthy does, it seems, is geared towards appeasing Donald Trump. Uh, and now there's this wrinkle about whether he did that whole thing, eight hours and 32 minutes, as a way of tr trying to tamp down this notion that if the Republicans take the majority uh, after the 2022 midterms, that Donald Trump could become Speaker of the House. Is that a fever we dream, do know, Ruth, or is that, go ahead, Chuck. I was just gonna say, we do know that Trump stays up late um, <laughs> and uh, you know does not sleep. So you have a point there. Uh, you didn't ask me, but I do think it's a fever dream that Trump would become speaker. But but yes, I think the need to appease Trump is ever present. Mm -hmm. Ruth? I uh, agree with Chuck, um, but also I think that, well, two things. One is, uh, what is Kevin McCarthy worried about most? What Kevin McCarthy is worried about most um, after just assuming that for the moment that Republicans um, retake the majority, which I think is um, sadly a pretty safe assumption, um, is that he will get edged aside for the speakership, not by Donald Trump, I do think that's a fever dream, but by someone else. And so this was his eight and a half hour um, audition or continuing audition after, remember, Kevin McCarthy tangled with Donald Trump on January 6th, um, had a very angry phone call with him that we don't know all the details of yet, and I look forward to hearing that. 
but in terms of messaging and even assuming that his message was to the base at large, when you talk for eight and a half hours, that's not messaging. That's just kind of spewing everything about your sandwich shop and your relationship with Elon Musk. And I would suggest that there's more ammunition for Democrats in there um, to use against Kevin McCarthy than there was terrific um, sound bites for Kevin McCarthy to use for Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about some some serious things here. Well, more serious things here, Chuck. Democrats in the White House have pivoted their messaging on Build Back Better to focus on how it would how it would counter rising inflation. What impact do you think um, the bill could really have on the on inflation, but on the economy uh, in general? Well, I'm unlike a lot of other people going to tell you the <laughs> the truth is, which is I do not know, and no one knows. <laughs> Um, there, there are a lot of people, you know, making these projections and seemingly very learned, uh, authoritative statements. But first of all, we don't know ultimately what the bill will contain because it's still got to go through the Senate. And secondly, the economy is functioning in such a wacky new way with all these supply chain issues. It's very difficult to project the impact. What I can say is that I think there is a certain, um, Desperation, honestly, in packaging this as an anti-inflation measure, which was never what it was intended as, um, because they have to adjust to the new reality, which is that inflation is a big problem and it's on the top of everyone's mind. And so since what you've got is this big piece of legislation uh, pending and it's the, the one thing on, your, uh, on the plate, call it anti-inflationary. Who knows? Maybe it will at some level either make inflation go away or at least not make it worse. But no one can say that for sure. Ruth, your, your view on this. So what I would say is like Chuck, I don't know, but Larry Summers does, or at least he has a much better shot at knowing than I do. And what he has said and written for the Washington Post is that number one, we should worry. And the recent news shows us that he was right months ago and we need to continue to worry about inflation, but that simultaneously, um, while I agree with Chuck that it's a reach and honestly a little bit of gaslighting to promote this bill as an anti-inflationary measure, that's not what it was designed for, um, but it's also wrong as I think as the Republicans have been claiming and as Summers argues in uh, one of his most recent, in his most recent op-ed for us, um, to say that this, that Build Back Better in itself is going to be inflationary or comes at the wrong time. First of all, some, if not all of it is paid for. The CBO score was more positive than people anticipated. It may actually produce more savings than CBO shows because of the effect of bringing in some new tax revenue with increased IRS enforcement. Um, and also many, when Chuck is correct, we are not clear yet on the um, fundamental end components of this bill, what it will look like, uh, contain what it will contain when and if it ultimately passes. But nonetheless, to the extent it's things like helping people afford childcare so they can go to the workforce, that should promote growth, not spur inflation. So th that's where I come down on it. Someone is getting a lot of messages, but Chuck, I, I, I'm going to get this on a loop of Ruth saying, Chuck is correct, so you can you can drop that in, in, well, in some of our Chuck meetings. Is correct. She says Chuck is correct, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Um, Take what you get, say, Chuck. <laughs> 
Well, you know, President Biden's approval rating, as I just talked uh, with Annie about in the latest Quinnipiac poll, is at an all-time low. And in, in the Quinnipiac poll, it's 36%. And that very well may be an outlier. But his approval ratings are low. Um, can the Biden agenda survive inflation, the pandemic, supply chain woes, Democratic infighting? Uh, is this something that's going to be a permanent anchor, a permanent weight on the president's agenda, or is this a momentary thing? Uh, Chuck, then, Ruth. Well, look, I think most people in Washington are at the moment assuming they're going to lose the Democratic Party will lose the House next year, uh, not just because of gerrymandering, but because of all the other issues you're talking about. So the real question is, in a way, what this means for 2024. And there, I think it, it's at least worth noting that December 2017 was the low point in Donald Trump's popularity rating. And then once they passed their tax bill, all the Republicans came home and it never reached that low again. Now, of course, he didn't get reelected, but he got very close. So that's a hopeful thought for Democrats. I just think that inflation is a presidency killer. I'm not saying anything original there, but if you look at history, presidents like Jerry Ford or Jimmy Carter, who were in office when inflation was spiking and seemed to be out of control, uh, didn't, didn't win. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. So next year, when we may have a new Fed chairman or a reappointed Fed chairman, and uh, there's an opportunity for the Fed to get into the act, maybe control inflation, the pandemic gets back to normal, could be a, could be a good year for Joe Biden. But I do mm -hmm. think that this problem is a huge threat to him and the party. Mm -hmm. Ruth? Um, I don't have a, I act, isn't this time for me to say, I agree with Chuck and, um, I agree with Chuck and I do think that my eye is really on the president's prospects or the Democratic Party's prospects or the Republican Party's prospects in 2024, because I think 20, history, um, reality, polls, everything else, kind of the gerrymandering, the closeness uh, already of the congressional majorities that Democrats are clinging to, all sort of bake in the cake for 2022. And it's all, I've been in too many Washington Post politics staff meetings where we talked about how ex-incumbent president couldn't possibly get reelected three years from now or two years from now. And they ended up, for the most part, getting reelected. So um, this is a bad moment for the Biden presidency. Mm -hmm. It's a little odd that it's a bad moment for the Biden presidency because, yes, uh, inflation is a presidency killer, but he has had, a and, and if Build Back Better passes, will have had a remarkable set of legislative achievements for a first-term president. So let's just watch and see if things continue right. to be this bad. We've got less than five minutes left, but I have to get you both on um, January 6th select committee um, stuff. Two questions. Should the committee pursue criminal contempt for Mark Meadows as it did with Steve Bannon because he defied the subpoena and didn't show up for his deposition? And also, if the committee, and I asked this of Congressman Adam Schiff, who is on the select committee, should the committee subpoena Donald Trump? Chuck, you go first. Well, on the first part of your question, uh, Chairman Thompson is being careful about the pursuit of Mark Meadows. 
um, pursuing sort of, as it were, as they say in the law, exhausting his remedies, uh, trying every means short of the subpoena and the criminal contempt to get Mark Meadows's testimony. And that's wise because Meadows is in a different posture than uh, Steve Bannon, who wasn't really even a government official when all of this was going on, whereas Meadows was the White House chief of staff. And there there are some actual uh, issues related to executive privilege there. So it would be, I think, imprudent to act as if there were not. So Thompson's being wise on that. We'll have to see how that plays out. I think Meadows is negotiating, at least we don't know how good a faith, but he is negotiating with the committee. Subpoena Donald Trump. Well, that would be fun, uh, but I think it would kind of tend to drag this thing out even more. Uh, and I'm concerned a little bit that by the time this committee uh, starts to gel in terms of really investigating, we'll be into the election and it'll be over before it's really gotten anywhere. Right. Ruth? So I, I have a lot of pause, as Chuck does, about pursuing to the max uh, contempt charges against Mark Meadows because we were talking about 2024 and imagining the possibility of a Republican president, whether it's President Trump or anybody else um, in 2025. And one could imagine a Republican Congress um, with the acquiescence of a Republican president summer, sum, uh, summoning former uh, Biden chief of staff, Ron Klain, to testify. And I don't think that would be good for the presidency and opening this door wide and insisting that Meadows testify about everything and turn over everything uh, is problematic. It should be negotiated. It should be negotiated behind closed doors and worked out as these things have been in the past. Uh, not because it's not really, really, really important to hear from Meadows, it is, uh, but because all of these things have precedential value. Um, as to Trump, tempting, but that would be a sideshow. It would be more litigation. You never get um, really particularly useful answers from him anyway. Let's concentrate on getting the information that really could come in close to real time and provide us the insight that we need. Um, we've got probably a minute left. Uh, real fast, Ruth, since you are the you are the lawyer uh, among us, did you find it significant that the attorney general left it to a grand jury to hand down the indictment of Steve Bannon? No, um, but I need to point out that Chuck spent a year at Yale Law School, which I think <laughs> the people at Yale Law School would tell you is equivalent to my three years at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> not, not true. No, uh, grand juries um, hand up indictments. That's what they do. I thought it was um, appropriate for the grand jury to indict Steve Bannon. And what I have my on right now are um, arguments next week in the DC circuit about the question of executive privilege, whose privilege is it anyway, between the former president and the current president in terms of the material that's at the archives, because that's where the interesting, some of the interesting stuff is. Okay, Chuck, since you went to Yale for a year, um, you got 15 seconds, and literally 15 seconds. The answer seconds. is very simple. The answer is very simple, Jonathan. I agree with Ruth. Ruth is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this we're, is we're not going to be paired up again. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No, absolutely, we're going to pair you up again because this is just a momentary kumbaya. Um, Ruth, <laughs> Ruth Marcus, Chuck Lane, we got to go. Thanks very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.